You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah there in your Old Testament. We just got done uh, two weeks ago finishing up our study in another minor prophet, the prophet of Haggai. And this week we're going to start with another minor prophet here, the prophet of Jonah, and Jonah is no doubt, I got to guess, a familiar story for most. You don't have to have grown up in the church to have heard about the story of the great big fish and the man who survived. I mean, no doubt, even if you haven't grown up in the Christian faith, there is a veggie tale somewhere that has found you. <laughs> and so it is a familiar story to many. And yet, Jonah is also a debated story, even amongst evangelical scholars who hold the literal truth of God's word. There is still debate uh, for many people because of the story itself and the way in which it's written. It, it, for some, even at worst, it's a, it's a fable, it's a fairy tale myth, it's poetical satire. At best, it's, it's a moral parable for Israel. And again, mainly because of the story of a fish that swallows a man and his ability to live through that experience. And we find that hard to believe and to get our minds around. In fact, I've talked to some people who confess that there are folks who have yet to believe in the truth of Jesus Christ because they just can't get over Jonah. And yet, I would side with Tim Keller who says these words, if you accept the existence of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then there is nothing particularly difficult about reading Jonah literally. See, the truth is, it's a crazy story for sure, but y'all, it doesn't even make the top 10 of crazy in the Bible. If you want to talk about a God who brings living, dead back to life, who spoke through words and brought everything that you can see or not even see into existence, you talk about a God who can walk on water, who can heal, then this is just another story that's in there that we're going to take by faith here in this moment. And in fact, what's interesting is the tale of the fish, it really only, the fish gets like two verses in this whole book. Because it's a mere fact in this story in the background so as not to distract from the greater narrative of this story, which is a miracle of redemption, of God's ability to save and to rescue And now I believe Jonah is a true story, a literal story, and the reason is because I believe Jesus believed it was. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. States it as a fact, just as his death and resurrection was a fact. But that being said, it is beautifully written. It is poetically written. There are so many intricacies to the symmetry and the poetry of how this is crafted. Jonah is a beautiful example, by the way, of what it means to conjoin creative art and the truth of God in a way that is compelling and beautiful to read. It's a great opportunity to reminder to leverage the creativity God's given you to help tell the story of the truth 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is beautifully poetically written. There's four primary movements in these four chapters that we're going to see. Chapter one, Jonah is going to run from God in disobedience. Chapter two, he's going to run to God in prayer. Chapter three, Jonah is going to run for God with the gospel, the good news. And chapter four, Jonah is going to run into God as he tries to run God in his own rebellion yet again. Yet the whole time in these movements, it is the story of the mercy and the grace of God that relentlessly pursues Jonah and pursues those who are far from him that we are meant to see. Ultimately, this is a story about God and this is a story about us. It's the reason why we theme this series, God as he is, us as we are. It's a story about us, a rebellious people. You're going to see a religious rebellion and an irreligious rebellion. Both of them are rebellion. And yet you're going to see the story of the God of love and justice who pursues a lost people in order to rescue them from their sin. In fact, it's interesting, the holiest day in all of Israel is Yom Kippur. Just had it here recently. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. And it's been the holiest day in all of Israel since its inception. And every time you have Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is when the high priest, the one time in the year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple of God and would take the red heifer sacrifice and would sprinkle the blood of that animal seven times over the altar, signifying the covering and propitiation of sin, satisfying the wrath of God towards sin and then clothing in righteousness and forgiving the offenses towards God. And it was the day when the people of Israel could find forgiveness through this one sacrifice. And yet it's interesting, still to this day, when Jews celebrate Yom Kippur, they celebrate by reading the book of Jonah. And at the end of their reading of the book of Jonah, they all recite in unison together, we are Jonah. It's because for them, they understand that Jonah represents many things, but of which is front and foremost is God's infinite mercy to forgive sinners. And yet his just wrath to rightly judge sin. And it represents our constant need to repent of the sin that so easily entangles us. And it celebrates the fact that in God's sovereignty, all elements of earth, even large fish, are God's tools that he can use however he wants in order to reach and to rescue those whom he wants to reach and rescue. And so they would chant, we are Jonah. And we would say, God as he is, us as we are. God as he is, just, holy, merciful, loving, relentlessly pursuing. Us as we are, stubborn, rebellious, disobedient, like Jonah. And my hope in this series as we open this book together, much like in Haggai, is that this book will serve to soften up our rebellious hearts towards God and yield us towards his compassionate mission to reach the nations, all peoples of the earth, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, starting right here in Dallas, Texas. Now, one of the other reasons I trust and believe the literal reality of this story of Jonah is because it's also rooted in history. 
Jonah's not just a made-up character. We get a glimpse of Jonah long before this book ever comes into play. In fact, just a little bit of timeline and background is as helpful just as it was with Haggai. We, we, we go back to 931 AD when the kingdom of Israel is split into two following Solomon. And you have this one kingdom turn into two, a north and a south, where down south you have the kingdom of Judah under initially Rehoboam, and then you have the northern kingdom under the initially Jeroboam I, the first of many wicked kings that would come and rule in the idolatrous north. And as this kingdom is split and you have king after king after king that comes along, eventually in 794 AD you have another Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, who raises up as king in the northern kingdom of Israel, and he is wicked. But yet, God raises up certain prophets to help Israel and to call out what their future will be. He raises up Amos and Hosea as well in this time and calls the people to repent of their wickedness and their idolatry. And then when we get to 2 Kings, in spite of this wickedness, God is going to raise up a final prophet up north to help restore a broken down wall, a prophet by the name of Jonah. And in 2 Kings 14.25, it says this, He, that is Jeroboam II, restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath to as far as the sea is of the sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by a servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who is from Gath Hefer. See, at this time, the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire was the greatest empire on earth at this time. They were the most bitter enemy of Israel. Three times prior to the book of Jonah, they had tried to take Israel out yet without success. Now, Jonah had already served as a prophet of God before this book. He had heard the call of God in 2 Kings. He responded in obedience to the call of God on behalf of the people of God. He was an obedient prophet in his day. But here in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Jonah's going to receive a second call that we have recorded from God. Only here it's not to give a word that will help protect Israel this time. It's a word that is meant to help protect Assyria, their enemy. Look at this, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, first of all, you need to know this is, a radical, this is a radical call in a couple of different ways. Number one, this is the first and only prophet in your entire Bible who will be called to go outside the borders of Israel to preach to another nation. You have other prophets, a few of them, that preach about other nations, the Assyrians as well. But this is the first and only prophet in the entire scriptures who's called by God to go outside of the borders of Israel into another nation and preach to them. But secondly, not just any nation, the Assyrian Empire. And not just any city in Nineveh, or in Assyria, but Nineveh. 
Nineveh, the great capital of this empire. And you need to understand something here to get the background of of what is going on in this time and place. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, was founded actually back in Genesis 10 from a direct descendant of Noah, a man by the name of Nimrod who is described as a tough, vicious warrior. And you had to be when your name's Nimrod. You've been bullied your whole life. You're going to stand up. You're a tough, vicious warrior. And so from day one, the city of Nineveh is bent on war. They are a warring people. Today, the city of Nineveh is the modern city of Mosul in Iraq. Many of you may remember that as one of the chief strongholds of ISIS. It's just north of the capital of what was of ISIS in Raqqa in Iraq. That's where Nineveh is in Mosul, modern-day Mosul. And, but back in that day, it was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Now, God says to Jonah, I want you to go there because their evil has risen up against me. You and I will read that term, and in our day and age, the term evil just becomes a subjective term that we've allowed Hollywood to define. It becomes vague for us. We just keep reading. We don't know what that evil is, but you need to understand the weight of what that statement meant. Nahum, which is another minor prophet who is parallel to Jonah at this time, gives us details about what this evil was that the Assyrian Empire was committing. This is an empire that Nahum tells us was a murdering empire. When they besieged a city, they didn't wasn't common practice, though they did it at times. It wasn't common practice like that of the Persians or the Babylonians to, to siege that city and take all those people captive. They wanted to incinerate that city. They wanted to murder every single person they could. And so they were a people that were, they were after blood. They would burn entire cities to the ground. There, were, there was nothing left of the city. When they would go into besieging of that city and warring against that city, they would slaughter the men, they would rape the women, and they would take the infants and dash their heads upon rocks. It's awful. It's vile what these people did in war. They would take a man before they would kill him, and they would sever both of his legs and one of his arms. They would leave one arm left so they could shake the hand of the man as he died as the ultimate insult of mockery. They would flay people alive on the walls of the city. They would host parades where they would force family members to carry the body parts of their other family members on poles in the parade. Nahum tells us there were stacks of bodies in the cities from all the people that they killed. We're also told they were involved in witchcraft, illicit acts of sexual immorality, prostitution, and they were a fraudulent uh, fraudulent people when it came to trade. They were bad businessmen with the neighboring nations. Isaiah also tells us they were known for their tremendous pride and arrogance, of which Nineveh was the capital the chief of all pride. Cities in that day, they would build walls to represent their strength of defense as well as the reputation of the God that they served. Nineveh, it is described, had 100-foot walls around the city. You can see the ruins here that was reconstructed. This is one of the gates in Mosul. 
that was renovated of the Assyrian Empire. Hundred-foot walls that were so thick, it was said that you could race three chariots side by side on the top of the wall all the way around the city. Monstrous walls as a sign of pride of their city and their gods. This was a bloodthirsty, murderous, violent, prideful, godless, vile people. They hated Israel, they hated Israel's God, and they'd sought to destroy them and eradicate them from the face of the earth. And God tells Jonah, his obedient prophet, who had served his people well, I want you to now to go into that city and let them know I see their evil. And I want them to repent. This would have been like sending you and I into modern day ISIS, sent over into Iraq with Bibles being handed out and a MAGA hat on telling them to repent. That ain't going to go well. Let me just tell you that right now. This would have been like sending a Jewish rabbi to hand out Torahs on the streets of Berlin in 1941. What would your response be? God tapped you on the shoulder right now and said, I want you to go right now into this closed country that hates you, hates me, hates everything about us, and I want you to go tell them that God's had enough of it and he's ready for them to repent and he'll give them mercy if they do or he will judge them if they do not. What would you do? Look at Jonah's response. Remember, obedient Jonah up to this point. It's never a good thing when the first words are, but Jonah. But Jonah rose, but he arose to flee, to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, that's right next to modern day Tel Aviv, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice again how extreme the language is here to contrast God's call with Jonah's disobedience. He, I want you to arise and go cry out, and again, the poetic nature, he arose all right, but he arose to flee, and he didn't just flee anywhere. He sought to flee to Tarshish. Y'all know where Tarshish is? Look at this map. This is what Jonah did. (laughs) He's in Joppa in Israel. I need you to go 550 miles northeast up here to Nineveh to crowd to them. Where is he going to go? I'm out. Spain's looking pretty good right now. He travels five times the length of disobedience. Five times in the opposite direction. Y'all, you couldn't get any further at that point in time. That was the end of the world. You go any further, you're in New York. That's the next stop. Tarshish. Tarshish is a word that literally means seacoast. It's the tip of Spain. It's the furthest you could go in the known world. And you know what's interesting? Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 66, 19, that Tarshish was the place where God's glory had never been known. The presence of God was not known in Tarshish. And yet, this is exactly where Jonah wanted to go. He wanted to join the people who had never heard about God, rather than go to the people to tell them about God. 
The question is why? Why does he want to run? Why does Jonah want to run from God? Why does he want to run from this incredible opportunity to serve God by proclaiming his mercy to the nations, the mercy Jonah had received? Why does he want to run from that opportunity to tell others that they can have that mercy too if they would repent? I think like us, there are many reasons why we would run a, want to run from a call to both evangelism and missions under the nations. There's many I'm going to give you seven of them that I think are reasons why we tend to dodge obedience to God's call to go share our faith with those who are far from the Lord. Some could argue one excuse is just a lack of knowledge. I I don't know how to do it. If I were sent to these people, if I have told you right now, you need to go outside, grab somebody off the street and just articulate the gospel to them that they might turn to Jesus and be saved. You might go, man, I, I don't know how to do that really. I believe in the gospel myself, but I don't really know how to articulate it. And so I don't know what to say, and I don't, I don't want to make a fool of myself. I don't really want to make a fool of Christianity. I, I don't want to unnecessarily offend somebody because I wasn't trained in how to do it effectively. And all of those things, I need to tell you, I have felt in my life. Maybe you felt them in yours. Just this, this impotence when it comes to being able to articulate the truth of the gospel I've felt those things, but we need to know a couple things. One, if that's ever been an excuse from yours. One, God's power to save is not dependent upon the slick articulation of our words. But it's on the power of his spirit. It's the reason why Paul gave a defense of why he had not gone to Rome yet. It wasn't because he was afraid. It wasn't because he didn't know how to articulate the gospel. It wasn't any of those because that's not what's going to save them to begin with. Paul says in Romans 1.16, it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. We're just to be the vessel that's sent and be obedient. But nonetheless, that can be an issue for us. And so secondly, maybe that's just an encouragement, sermon within a sermon, to get better training in how to share your faith. We're in the middle of a four-week evangelism class right now here at Northway. We're two weeks in, but it doesn't matter. You just show up tonight if you want. Just go to 3.30, just listen. And we'll help get you trained on how to share the gospel. Because truth, apart from knowledge of how to share, it can be terrifying. If, I, if you're on a commercial airplane right now and you're asked, all of a sudden the flight attendant came to you and said, hey, we need you to land this plane right now. How many of y'all would leave a wet spot in that seat right there? Because you'd be terrified. Absolutely, that'd be me. Right? Because I have not been trained on how to land commercial airlines. But if you had gone through hours and hours of training, then all of a sudden that, that fear of not, lack of knowledge starts to get dispelled a little bit. So great opportunity for training there. But I don't think that's Jonah's reason. Not a lack of knowledge. Some would say it's a lack of time. That's another common excuse for not sharing the gospel. Man, I just don't have time. I'm busy. You know how many hours I'm working right now? Come home, I'm exhausted. I don't have, I don't have time to reach my neighbors. I don't have time to even get with my coworkers. I mean, it's just it's, it's, it's a lack of time. But as we saw with Haggai, it's never about time. We all have the same 24 hours as anybody else. It's always about priority and the object of our motivation towards that priority. I had a friend call me out on this one time when I was using this excuse and said, Shay, let me ask you something. If you lost your pen this morning, how long would you look for it? I was like, oh, 30 seconds before you moved on. He said, if you lost your car keys, how long would you search for your car keys? Ooh, I might give that a good week. You know, said, if you lost one of your daughters, how long would you look for her? I was like, oh, I I would never stop. It's an issue of priority. 
Christ said, Matthew, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. It's not time. And I don't think that was Jonah's excuse either. A third excuse that is often used is, well, that's just somebody else's job. That's the pastor's job. That's the, that's the spiritually elite. And I need you to know, that's the reason why one of my seminary profs, Howard Hendricks, told me that Christian evangelism is like a football game. You have 70,000 fans who are in dire need of exercise watching 22 men in dire need of rest. In general, we have about 90% of the Christian population watching the other 10% do the work of ministry. But that's not what God's called us to. We are, work, we are all to be workers of the ministry, according to Ephesians. We are to be a royal priesthood, according to Peter. We are to be ambassadors, according to Paul, to the Corinthians. All of us have been called to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is not reserved to professional clergy. We are the priesthood. And I don't think that's Jonah's excuse either. I don't think it was somebody else's job here. The fourth excuse we hear quite a bit is the silent witness. I'll just let my deeds do the speaking. I don't want to really articulate. I don't want to be offensive. I'm just going to live a godly life, and that will shine light on people. And that's great. And oftentimes we will use St. Francis of Assisi is our poster child from that, who quoted, preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. And that sounds awesome. The problem is it's not biblical. Words are always necessary. People can marvel at our lives, but unless we tell them why, then all we are is a box of good works that only exist to glorify ourselves. Joel promised in Joel chapter 2 verse 32, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a fact. If you call out to the Lord and you put your trust in him for your salvation, you will be saved. Paul quotes that in Romans 10 and he follows it up in Romans 10 14 by saying this, but how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching to them? The fact is, is we need both gospel words and gospel deeds. When we separate those two and only give words or only give deeds, we are distorting the gospel. It is both a life of godliness that's telling the story and the words to call people to put their trust into Jesus. It is both. And again, Bo, I don't think that's Jonah's issue. Another excuse that's out there is that's just not my gift. I don't have that spiritual gift. And man, God just didn't give me the gift of evangelism. Besides, I'm, much, I'm just better at praying for you while you go. So I'll do that. And again, that sounds noble. But again, that's not biblical. Though it's true, God does spiritually gift some believers to have greater empowerment for the fruit of evangelism. The gift for some never trumps the command to all. The Great Commission has been given to all believers, not just those with a gift of evangelism. The charge to evangelize, to make disciples, and to reach the nations, we've all got to play a part in that. But I don't think that was Jonah's excuse either. There's a sixth one, though, and maybe this one gets closer. And that's just straight fear. I'm just afraid to go before those people. Surely this was Jonah. I mean, the Syrians, we saw how evil they are. This dude shows up telling them to repent in their capital city. They're going to kill him. 
And so maybe it's just fear of persecution, fear of backlash, fear of fallout with family members. Maybe it's the fear of losing something that is more precious to us than what it is that can be gained by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's just fear there. And maybe certainly we'd give Jonah a pass. He's just afraid to go into these people. But do you know that that wasn't it either? None of those six excuses are, what, are the reason why Jonah chose not to go to Nineveh. No, we're not told in chapter 1, but we are told why in chapter 4. Listen to these words of Jonah in chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah tells us why he flees. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from judgment or disaster. Do you know why Jonah didn't go? It's the seventh excuse. It's self-righteous prejudice. It is pure racism fueled by self-righteousness. That's why. It's not that he didn't go to Nineveh because he was afraid or because he didn't feel like he had the time to do it or it wasn't his gift or he just needed better training. Those were none of the reasons why he chose to flee. He ran because he knew God would save them. And that he could not get behind. And you need to know it is in this moment right here in verse 3 where the true colors of a self righteous prejudice are being revealed in Jonah. And it's much like the older brother in the prodigal son story who was completely obedient to the father's will. That is until he saw that the father was willing to forgive the younger brother when he repented. The irreligious, licentious rebel, when the father was going to forgive that guy Now I've got a problem with it. It's only then that the true motives of the older brother are exposed. And the same with Jonah right here. Jonah is a guy who is okay with the mercy of God being extended to people just like him, but he's not okay with it going out to others who are different, even the worst of his enemies. you got to understand, Jonah did not reject God's word until... It meant loving and serving a people that he felt did not deserve it. And can I just be honest with you? That's us too. Like the rest of the Jews would say at Yom Kippur, we are Jonah. God as he is, us as we are, we do the same thing. And I've seen this well up in myself. I saw this early on. When I was in my fraternity, I was praying for certain fraternity brothers to be saved, who are far from God. I wanted them to come to know Christ until a few of them started hazing me, which all of them started doing that. That's just how it works. And uh, there is one particular fraternity brother who just made my life a living hell for a little bit. Thought it'd be fun to just kind of mess with me. These guys at one point asked me to show up at their apartment unannounced one night. They called me up, said, you need to be here and uh, here soon, and, and you need to show up wearing a suit. I didn't even own a suit. And I had to run to the store real quick and charge one on a credit card because I was like, I didn't own one. 
And I show up with a suit and I ring the doorbell and somebody from the window above me dumps water and paint on me. And there was one guy in particular who really got under my skin. And I just stood up to him. They didn't like that. Next thing I know, man, my whole pledge, I was a pledge class president. So I all get pulled into a room and they pull me off to the side and for the next few hours just ream me. And one of them is this one dude. And yeah, I prayed he'd get saved. I prayed for the justice of God to smite him. Anyways, let me, let me fast forward the tape. Years go by. I mean, years go by. I'm now a college pastor up in Denton. And I get a call from the office of the Village Church. I'd never met this brand new lead pastor named Matt Chandler. He was wanting to get a meeting on the books with a couple of folks from our church. He called, had his assistant call me. And so I take the call, I get on the phone, and the guy on the other end goes, Hey, Shay, this is Matt Chandler's assistant. My name's Chris Chavez. I'm trying to get uh, some time with you. And I went, Chris Chavez? He's like, Yeah, yeah, it's, it's me. Chris, Chris Chavez from Sigma Nu? Yeah, yeah, me. Chris Chavez? Chris Chavez? They like dump stuff on me that day with a suit and, you know, pulled me in the other room. That Chris Chavez? He's like, yeah, man. Lord got a hold of me. I went off into the military and Lord got a hold of me. I gave my life to Christ. Now I'm working here at the Village Church. I'm Chandler's assistant. Just trying to get some time. And I was like, Chris Chavez? <laughs> it was like Chevy Chase looking at, at, at uh, Cousin Eddie on the driveway right there going, Eddie? You know, I, I just didn't have a category for this. Are you kidding me? You're a believer? You're not dead? I couldn't figure out which prayer the Lord had just answered. Anyways, long story short, I end up going to work for the village later on and on same staff with Chris. We've reconciled. We're great. Praise God. But I'm telling you, it exposed something within me that I can pray for your salvation all day long, but once it actually happens, I don't know that I'm excited about that because I've always identified you as my enemy and for you to be brought near as my brother now, that exposed my self-righteousness, exposed my prejudice towards others that I felt were lesser deserving than me. And so God, you need to know, makes it abundantly clear both here in Jonah and through the rest of Scripture that to love God is to love what God loves and that is people who are far from him. And I, I want you to see this. I think categorically in Scripture, there are three categories of people that we have been called to arise and move towards with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think those three are those people who are outside of our belief, those people who are outside of our biology, and those people who are outside of our behavior. And here's what I mean by that. Those who do not believe like you and I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who do not look like you and I look, in our own ethnicity, our own race, our own gender, and those who do not act like you and I act, that we perceive their behaviors worse than ours. When it comes to those outside of our belief, those who are non-believers, 
The scriptures are clear. We have been called as those who have been recipients of the gospel, who have received the mercy of God, to go give it away to those who have yet to put their trust into Jesus. We're told in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and he quotes Isaiah 49, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God's desire is that his glory would cover the earth like the water covers the seas, it tells us. God's desire is that the knowledge of him, the knowledge of the saving grace of Jesus Christ would go out to every person on this earth, would be extended to them, not just be hoarded in to those of us in one particular community. We've been called to go unto the nations to go give this gospel away so that they can hear and they can respond. If they reject, then that's on them and God's judgment will be just when it comes. But that news is to go out and God wants to use us who have received that news by somebody else bringing it to us that we might go in and bring it to others. But then secondly, not only those outside of our belief, those outside of our own biology, those who don't look like you and I look, who are different ethnicities, different skin colors, different genders, that we're not to be prejudiced towards them by withholding the gospel from them and holding the opportunity to be reconciled to them. Jesus said in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That word for nations is not political states. You can take your Republican and Democrat off. You can take your country identity off and that nations are ethnicities, people groups, of every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout the earth. And there is not one group that is more superior than the other. We are all deserving of the righteous judgment of God, but yet the mercy of God has come through Jesus Christ. And we've been called to go reach the nations with this gospel. Do not think that race and prejudice is a non-issue in our church. Do not think that race and prejudice is an issue, is a non-issue in our city or in our culture. Just ask our minority brothers and sisters. They already know it's an issue. We must seek to be a people who draw near to one another, even those who have different experiences than we experience, and we've got to be able to do a lot of listening and empathizing especially to our minority brothers, when you're a majority group in a culture, there is the need to enter in and to listen to the experience of others. We must understand and actively engage wherever racial injustice is occurring and speak up for those without a voice if we are to ever move forward in seeing the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ exalted in this city. And because that is not happening, that is one of the reasons we will also host a lament service here next week. We want to grieve over those injustices around us. In terms of reaching those outside of our behavior, I'm talking about those that we would deem enemies. Those who have so offended us by the acts, the egregious acts of their sin or their own prejudice or whatever they've done to betray us. There is within our human flesh the desire, not for justice, but revenge. And the desire to just hate them and move away from them. And yet, Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, You have heard it said, 
that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is Jesus saying to us, this is Jesus saying to Jonah, when you go and you enter in with those who are your enemies in a chance to share the good news with them that they might be reconciled and brought near to God and near to you, you are acting as if you are in the family of God. But when you choose to say, I'm above those people, they're below me, and I will not enter into those spaces, you are acting like you're a part of a different family. The family of God draws near. And so we must draw near even for our own enemies. And so I want you to think about who your enemies are, who it is right now that you loathe right now, that the last thing that you would want to see is then become a brother or sister of yours in the faith of God. Or be reconciled. You know what the theme verse of Jonah is? There's one verse that I think themes the whole book. We're going to see it in two weeks from now. It's in Jonah chapter 2 verse 9. It's the last phrase of his prayer in chapter 2. Where he simply confesses salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the lesson that God is after in Jonah. Salvation is not yours, Jonah. You don't get to decide who gets my mercy and who doesn't. That's my job. Your job is to be obedient and be the one who delivers it because you are the one who received it as well. Salvation belongs to me. We will never be able to give the grace of God away horizontally to those around us until we first recognize that we were the least to deserve it ourselves and received it uh, vertically. When you get downwind of yourself and you realize that you too were once an enemy of God and yet by his mercy has invited you into his family through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, that should humble us that we who were once enemies have now been brought near and we now get the unspeakable privilege to go share this gospel with those who are far from God, maybe even our own enemies. And that is not easy to do. That is a supernatural work of God. But understand, when this call is put on our life, when God, I promise you this, when God puts the call in your life to go share with those, whether here in Dallas or to the ends of the earth, the nations, as one theologian said, there will always be a ship to Tarshish waiting for you. You don't have to go looking for it. The ship will be right there at the harbor waiting to take you away from obedience to God. Don't get on that boat. Listen to the voice of God. Heed the voice of God as we move towards obedience and trust in him to go give the good news away that first came to us. Now, what happens when you don't? Well, that's the rest of Jonah. We'll jump into that next week. What I'd love for us to do right now is a couple of things. I'd love for us to celebrate communion and remember the work of God to save his enemies, which is us. But I'd also love us to spend a moment praying even for our own enemies who need to hear of the gospel as well. As these men and women, covenant members, are heading back to grab the communion elements, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have not yet transferred your trust from your own works to the work of Christ completely, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, we'd ask you to hold off on this meal. Just let the elements go on down the row. 
We just encourage you to consider the personal work of Jesus, that your hearts might be drawn to him in faith. We're glad you're here. But this meal is for believers to remember what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, as these elements are passed out, could you just, let's all just take a moment right where we're at. I want you to think about who that enemy was that popped in your head. Somebody that you just have a hard time with right now who needs the same grace that was given to you. Can we pray for them? Let's pray for our enemies. Pray for those who are far from God right now who need to hear the message of Christ. And then we'll come back together here in just a moment. We'll take this meal together. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of the local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9, 11, and 5.30 and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.